Gen X Playback episode number six. Number six for Gen X Playback. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our little topic show where we talk about our favorite times in the past in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Welcome to Gen X Playback. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And we want to just take a little bit of time as we started to get some feedback on our uh, first, you know, five episodes that we've done with, uh, with Gen X Playback. And uh, happy to say that we have uh, some listeners out there from all walks of life and all across the world, actually. We found that we had a listener in the great country of Australia and in the United States, uh, as far west as Texas and as far north as New Hampshire. So it's great. Uh, hopefully, if you are from those areas uh, and you are listening again, welcome back. And we certainly do appreciate the fact that I think for Sean and myself, it kind of proves, kind of validates that there are other people like us out there that kind of like to talk about these things that happened, you know, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, just because uh, people that are in their teens and 20s and tell us that we're old and this is these are topics they don't want to hear. Uh, I, I disagree. I think there's a lot of people out there like us that want to reminisce about a fabulous time in, in the world and it's it is really exciting to uh to kind of see how you know we're, we're reaching some of these other people uh you know different areas and, and and i agree you know major shout out to those listeners out there and speaking of a fabulous time i i for gen xers particularly for sean and myself we're going to cover a year in a movie that for me is about as good as it gets and the year was 1984 and the movie was 16 Candles, and Sean wanted to, for us to spend some time in this episode and, and just talk about the movie and just what a great movie it was and just kind of reminisce and, and learn about some of the characters and, and maybe some of the plot lines. So, Sean, this is, this is yours, so take it away. Okay, well, you know, and, you know we can kind of go back and forth with how, how you want to go with this, but you know, part of the reason why I, I picked 16 Candles was it, it's a John Hughes film, and, and we'll get in a little bit about John Hughes and his background, but for me, you know, John Hughes is the voice of our generation, at least as far as movie making. Uh, just an incredible run of movies. He created the teen genre, and it was super prominent back in the 80s, and it, it, it was a voice, John Hughes, his voice really spoke um, to a lot of us, and, and so 16 Candles was, was his directorial debut <clears throat> and it kind of kicked off you know the string of incredible movies that he did and do you have the the, the list here i mean if if not i can kind of run through some well, of them go ahead i mean i i can definitely <coughs> jump in but he started uh, you know as a, as a director and writer he he wrote pretty much all the movies that he directed and then he also wrote screenplays for other movies that were directed by other people for example like home alone um which was one of the biggest, most successful holiday movies ever made. But other than that, you're talking 16 Candles, you're talking The Breakfast Club, mm-hmm. Weird Science, uh, Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink. Um, one of, you know, the John Candy movies, which are among my favorites, Uncle right. Buck, The Great Outdoors, and Planes, Trains, and Planes, Automobiles. Trains, and Automobiles. It just, <clears throat> just a slew of movies that had so much warmth to them. Uh, his his character writing is really good. The casting in the movies is also really strong. And, um, you know, he had it all going on in the 80s. And, like, I agree with you, Sean. I think, I think for people our age, he was really the first movie director or movie writer that created movies that were relatable. I mean, obviously, there were teen movies that were made 
in the 70s, 80s, 90s. But sure. he was really the guy that that made me look at those characters and say, I can relate to that person. Oh, absolutely. And one of the, the you know, his big talent was that he, he, he gave teenagers a voice. So you're right. There was in the 70s and eight, eight, other 80s movies, there were teen movies, but it, they were kind of the same formula. You know, it was always, you know, some coming of age. Usually it, it was... Uh, you know, it was, you know, oftentimes they would call the teen sex movies that, that that's not what John Hughes was going for. He was going for, you know, issues, problems that kids might have had, but not necessarily dealing with them in a depressing way. It was usually with uh, where it was comedic. So you, you, you definitely had, you know, some serious issues. And we'll talk about that here with 16 Candles, the where. An adult might look at well. Let's let's you know, as the example Sixteen Candles. You know, in the movie, <clears throat> Molly Ringwald's character Samantha is dealing with the issue of really liking this boy Jake Ryan, and it's so the the heart ache that she's feeling towards this person that she thinks doesn't know she exists uh, is something that would be very typical for a, a 15, 16, 17 year old, and it's easy for an adult to look at at someone that just say, oh, that's just silly. You know, that's, that's, that there's, there's, there's more important things in the world than that, but not when you're 16 years old, not, not when you're 15. Right. And I think the, you know, the background of, of a movie like 16 Candles, you have the comedic um, presence involved where the parents forget their daughter's birthday. Uh, it's kind of like every kid's worst nightmare. Not that it would ever happen, but a lot of funny events come from that portion of, of the movie itself. But if that was just the movie, in in and of itself, I don't think it would have been successful or very memorable. The fact that the character writing that went into it and the portrayals by the kids that were doing those characters is what gives the the lasting um, you know impression on not only our generation but also the next generation as well because they it still goes on in high school today. You know, some of the, some of the things that we're going to talk about with, with regards to, you know, with the geek and the girl who is young and idolizes the senior and how the seniors treat the underclassmen and the, all that stuff uh, existed when we were in school. It exists now. And I think that's part of the genius of, of the script writing that was in this movie. True. And you know, when we started, you mentioned about the year 1984 and you know, what a great year it was. And it really, in a lot of ways, epitomizes Generation X. It is one of the, the hallmark years in music. And, and here it also is, you know, related with movies as well. And for me, it, it definitely tied in because, you know, the movie 16 Candles in, in the movie Samantha's 16. Well, I turned 16 in 1984. So it, it is definitely dealing with exactly what my world was, was like. It's set in the suburbs. We live in the suburbs. And that's very similar to what we would have experienced. So it definitely fits. The uh, Anthony Michael Hall's portrayal of Ted Farmer, also known as Farmer Ted or uh, Ted the Geek. I was, he was 14 in the movie. I was 13 when the movie came out. Uh, he was a freshman in high school and I was in the eighth grade. And it's funny because you have that transition from eighth grade or if you're going from, say, middle school or junior high to senior high. You go from being the coolest guy in the school and now you are, you're starting all over again. And that's, that's what Ted or Anthony Michael Hall's character is experiencing. He is the king 
of his group. Sure. He's still the king. He, I'm sure he was the king in eighth grade, but now he's a freshman and everybody looks at him completely differently than what they did maybe a year ago where he was somebody that was very cool. Now he's an underclassman and he's basically treated like garbage. But He is, but but not by his crew. You know, right. his group of guys still kind of worship him and they all looked at him. They, they may make fun of him and stand along the wall at the dance. We should just get into it. Okay, go ahead. And go so, ahead. John, so... We're going to start with with um, sixteen candles, um, just because I think it epitomizes John Hughes and it really does kind of kick things off. But I think we need to kind of give a bit a background about John sure. Hughes. And so, you know, John Hughes, you know, he was relatively young when he made this movie. So, John Hughes was born in 1950. That makes him 34 years old when he writes and directs Sixteen Candles. You know, it's definitely an adult, and it's it's interesting when when you're a teenager. I think anybody over the age of 25 is old. Sure. Right? So so John Hughes is, is old, but in the world of movie making, he's pretty young. Well, since you say that, um, we were at the beach one summer at Ocean City, and it was at the end of the day, and one of my friends walks up to a young lady that is sunning on the beach, and he goes, excuse me, ma'am, do you know what time it is? And she <laughs> looks up at him and goes, ma'am she goes i'm 24 years old and so just yeah like it kind of adds to your point that's that's the way it works and i think i know which friend that was but um so 1950 he 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 grows up in the in the early years for the first 12 years of his life he lives in gross point michigan uh kind of there's there's a, a, a good john cusack movie out there called gross point blank i would have had no idea about gross point had i not watched that movie but kind of you know the suburbs his family then moves to the suburbs of Chicago. And it's it's interesting because John Hughes loves Chicago, and Chicago will forever play a part in his movies. It's always going to be the, 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 the central part of his movies. And in a lot of ways, Chicago is a character. And it's not L.A. It's not New York. Once again, it kind of makes it more relatable to you and I. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not necessarily in a... Um, well, we're certainly not in a city area. We're in the suburbs. What, you know, Lancaster County, where we are, it has farming, but it's not rural. You know, it's known as a farming area. Right. And, and Chicago has always had kind of a blue-collar personality. Very blue-collar. You, you, it's very sports. Uh, they're, they're very sports-crazy like we are here. Right. It was kind of centered on family. And sure. I think a lot of John Hughes, John Hughes is, you know, his movies were always family-centric. You know, always seemed to have a, a dynamic there where there was, you know, a, a mom, dad, brother, sister. And um, so that that part plays into it. Now, did brothers and sisters always get along in his movies? Absolutely not. But that's kind of regular life. I mean, we didn't always get along with each other, nor did we always right. get along with our sister. That, so, and that's part of it. Yeah, that is part of it. You know, so he he goes to the, the suburbs of uh, Chicago. And he goes uh, to uh, Glenbrook North High School, it, which, and the reason I mentioned that is because he films at his high school. I mean, later on, when he, when he does 16 Candles, he's, he's shooting scenes at his, his actual high school. So John Hughes has said, and uh, for those of you who don't know, John Hughes passed away in 2009. So he uh, um, has said that, you know, he, was not, he wasn't popular in high school. But what he decided to do was... Um, he wanted to to write stories that if he had the ability to write back then, you know, when, when he was 34 years old, if he had the ability to say what he would have said at a 34-year-old, 
this is what he would have come up with when he was 15, 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Okay. No, and, and uh, you know, <clears throat> always watch out for the quiet kids because from what I read about John Hughes, he always described himself as being kind of the quiet guy in the corner. Yeah. Uh, those quiet guys have a tendency to observe. <laughs> right. So I'm sure he observed a lot of high school behavior when he was in school. And even though he wasn't the, the king or the, the stud athlete, or uh, I'm sure he was probably gathering or, or absorbing this information of who he went to school with to create some of these characters that he ended up writing about. Well, John Hughes loved music. Uh, it, it, even early as his dream was to be in a band. And, you know, we, through from Sixteen Candles all the way through, music is a, a central part of the movie. And he, he, he oftentimes, like in Pretty in Pink, you know, that, that was based on a psychedelic first song, which inspired the title. It, it's not like the, the, the first wrote Pretty in Pink for the soundtrack. It was an existing song. So John Hughes was definitely uh, into music. He played in a band. So he was, art, you know, he, he liked art class. He wanted to be an artist. And he loved to write. And he said one of the issues was because he came from a family that was very business-oriented. And his family couldn't get their head around just being a writer. That wasn't, that wasn't a career. But if you would work for an ag- agency as a Kuiper copywriter, which John Hughes eventually did, mm-hmm. that was fine, because that was least in the business world. That, that made sense to them. So John Hughes, he graduates in 1968. He then goes off to college at uh, Arizona, he does not graduate. He, he then he, he drops out. He comes back, but he goes to work for an ad agency because he's, he's a very talented writer. And he, um, while he's doing this, for about 10 years, he's working in the ad agency world. He starts this, this writing career off on the side where he starts submitting things to National Lampoon Magazine. Yeah, he does. And it was, um, you know, he's quite successful. And there's something really to be said about good uh, – Comedy writers aren't necessarily presentable. Like they're they're not the guys that can stand up there and kill a crowd in a you know two or three minute stand up comedy routine. But yet there's a you know there's for every stand up comedian out there that's successful, there's probably you know a hundred or so comedy writers who are writing a lot of the jokes and and the the funny elements. And for for somebody like John Hughes, probably uh, you know. If you heard him interviewed, if you ever watched any interviews of John Hughes, he doesn't really come across in the interviews as this effervescent, you know. Oh no, he's he's very he's quiet. very very quiet, yeah. very serious, very deep, quiet voice, very serious. He's just a very soft spoken guy, now, but he's funny. But but he, uh, yeah. If you pay attention, yeah. And we went to school with guys like that who, you know, how they had anything to say, but usually what came out was very sarcastic. And was pretty witty. And I, I think he probably, I would guess he probably fell into the, that same genre as a, as a young adult where, he, you know, he was probably, the, like you said, the quiet kid hanging out. But uh, when it came to writing, there's, there's a skill to, to being a good comedic writer. And his, uh, his scripts were, were very funny. And you're probably going to you know, mention the National, the, Europe, the National Lampoon Vacation sure. movie that he wrote. Um, just, just a great just a great script. And, and as he developed and became better and better at it, the, the scripts got better and better. And also what helped him, I think, is that he could draw upon the decade that he spent working in an office. So a lot of his characters work in an office. You, you talk about uh, National Lampoon's vacation. I mean, Clark Griswold, I mean, he is not in an ad working for an ad agency, but he's working in an office. He... Um, 
uh, the Steve Martin character. It's the same sort of guy. It's that upwardly middle class, kind of a comfortable existence, but not necessarily an exciting existence. That working executive kind of guy. Exactly. You're probably not going to rise to the top of the corporation, but successful enough where if you're like Clark, you're going to put a swimming pool in at Christmas time and... Uh, you know, you, you can take the family on a nice vacation to Wally World. I'm sure he retired 65. Probably, you know, <laughs> decent pension. And, and But that is, that's the world that John Hughes was living in. So it's kind of interesting that he then spins those things off himself later on when he's when he's developing some of these characters. Sure. So, so he starts to write for National Lampoon, submits some things, and they're extremely well received. And as a result, he eventually becomes a writer for National Lampoon. Interestingly, when he agreed to join the staff at National Lampoon, one of his requirements was he got to live in Chicago. He was not going to move to New York and where the Lampoon offices were were at. And part of the reason he even made connections with them at New York was because the ad agency he worked for had an office there. And when he would work on some of the ad campaigns, he would commute to New York and then talk to the guys at National Lampoon. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought that that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So he writes. Uh, you know, he he kind of takes the leap. So it, it goes pretty fast after he leaves the the ad agency world. Uh, he's about thirty years old. He then starts writing these articles, well received. And at the time, National Lampoon was kind of hot. Mm-hmm. You know, they had they they had that huge success with um, uh, with the uh, the. The Animal House movie, yeah, right? Animal House. Right. Yeah. So they're trying to recreate that. And they had some failures. And, and they, you know, he said that everybody at Lampoon was kind of getting uh, a development deal. And so he just happened to be one of the writers that they said, hey, you know, this guy's funny. Let's see if we can have him uh, do something. So he writes, um, he writes a script, you know, some successful, some not. But what he, the, the first thing that he really did that became successful was Mr. Mom, the Michael Keaton movie. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a, that was a pretty big hit. That was a very successful movie. Actually, if you look in terms of box office, you know, we're, we're covering 16 Candles. Uh, Mr. Mom did three times at the box office what 16 Candles did in the theater. Uh, very successful movie, and it really kind of jump-started Michael Keaton's career. It did, and because of the success of Mr. Mom, um, John Hughes got a three-movie deal with Universal. So now he has the ability to kind of develop some things. Well, the, the first thing then he... He then comes out with the National Lampoon Vacation film, which you and I saw that in the theater with our parents at the beach. Still, still a great movie to this it, day. It, it is, and you know, a, a little-known character appears there as a young Rusty Griswold, and that is Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, it, though, you know, when Anthony Michael Hall said he never met John Hughes the entire time that he filmed uh, Vacation. But John Hughes was watching Anthony Michael Hall play the character of Rusty, and it was from his portrayal in that movie that he started to think about putting a vehicle together for for what he was going to approach him for as his next movie. Right, right. So while Sixteen Candles becomes the first movie that John Hughes directs, that he, that he, he comes out with on his own, it's not the first movie that he set out to create. You know, the first movie was going to be The Breakfast Club. Unfortunately, The Breakfast Club was this difficult movie to launch, and at, I'm, I'm sure most of you Gen Xers out there have seen the movie. It's pretty much just shot there in the library at the high school, and it's almost like a play. And John Hughes said that he thought it would be easier to sell that, oh, I don't need a lot of sets, it'll be cheaper, we can film everything in one room, 
and the studios just didn't get it. And so as a result, he was having a diff- difficult time launching it. But he's doing the auditions, and they're, they're going through, seeing who they're going to cast for the movie, and who walks in but young Molly Ringwald walks in and and John Hughes immediately took to her and got her and and you know knew who this character was the, the legend is after meeting her he then goes home for the weekend and he writes 16 candles in one weekend yeah in one weekend yeah. just for her with I mean, the whole movie was specifically for her and Molly at this point she was she was not a newbie to the entertainment business. She was actually on a very successful TV show, The Facts of Life, when it first started. It was a spinoff of Different Strokes, and she was one of the girls at the school. So I think she was on there for about two seasons. She was there one season. Was it one it, season? It was okay. she, she was part of the cast that when they, they asked a bunch of the girls, when they decided they needed to pare down, and then they, they you know... They only took like four or five of them, and you know it was um, you know with Natalie and they added the Joe character and Blair and Tootie, and then they they got in trouble. That's right. the that was the story. They they're living in the regular dorm room. They they get in trouble. Then they have to go work, uh, so they they can stay in the school. And the the story behind it was they they thought for a half hour comedy, there were too many characters. Because this was a house full of girls, right? And I, I do remember the character, Molly Ringwald's character, and, and it was Molly. And her, that name was her name was Molly on the show. She was yeah. kind of obnoxious. Yeah, I mean that's kind of how I remember. Her. Yeah, she was this very opinionated little girl. I mean, little, I mean, she was she's my age, so I mean that's that's what she was portraying, and she was, you know, probably a little annoying. So as a result, they she was somebody that did not make it through to to season number two. Yeah, didn't make it through the cut, but. She was, at, by the time she talked to John Hughes uh, about working with him, she'd been in the business for a few years. She had done Broadway. She had done Annie. And so she had she had some success on the stage. And then plus she had the TV show in her back pocket. So this, uh, she was a skilled actress, well, uh, you, is you, what I wanted to say. Well, you mentioned the fact that John Hughes was watching Anthony Michael Hall. He was also watching Molly Ringwald because she was in the movie The Tempest. A total flop of a movie, and I, I actually watched that movie probably in about 1984, 1985, because, folks, Scott and I got uh, HBO, and we also got the Philadelphia version of HBO Prism, Prism right about the same time, so I completely binged on any ridiculous movie that was on. It was amazing, the garbage that we sat and watched, <laughs> yeah. Some was, was good, a lot was not good. It, it caused it forced you to watch movies. I'll say that it it, it made us uh, appreciate the arts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you know, John Hughes saw Tempest and really liked her. So that's part of the reason why she even got the the chance to audition for the Breakfast Club. So Molly is pretty much handpicked for the show. But you had a little tidbit on that as well. So the studio the studio had different ideas about who should be cast, like who should read for these characters. So he basically appeased the the studio by having a casting call and having other people come in, he, even though he sort of had people in mind that he wanted to choose. And Robin Wright was was brought in by the studio to Robin read for, Wright from Forrest Gump. From Forrest Gump. And also before that, The Princess Bride. A lot of people love the movie, The sure. Princess oh, that's Bride. That's a great movie. Uh, but what I found interesting was that Robin Wright was brought in for just about every... The studio loved Robin Wright. 
John Hughes, she was brought in to read for so many John Hughes movies that she never got. And when, he, uh, you know, if you're a Gen Xer, you understand what the term the Brat Pack is when you're talking about this this time period in, in life with these actors. Robin Wright very easily could have been part of the Brat Pack because she read for just about every movie that these that these actors were a part of that ended up becoming these cultural icon type movies. Uh, but also for the part of, of Ted, Ted Farmer, mm-hmm. that Anthony and Michael, the studio actually brought in Jim Carrey to read for yeah, that, I did hear that, that character yeah. as well. So could you imagine Jim Carrey as Farmer Ted? <laughs> It'd just be... No. I, I don't know. He just seems too old. He, and he was older. Yeah. And, whereas Anthony Michael Hall was of appropriate age. He, I mean, was, he, he, he looked awkward in he, that movie. He was, ex- you know, and once again, he's exactly my age. So, you know, when, when they, the movie was released, he's 16, but when it was actually filmed, he was 15. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a little bit of a political game that you have to play when you're making a movie and you're trying to keep the studio happy. And the studio's like, hey, why don't you put this person in? It kind of reminds me in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody where Mike Myers is playing the, the radio executive. Oh, yeah. They, and yeah. they're kind of having that give and take, that back and forth, like, I want this song. And they're like, no, we want this. And so I'm sure there's probably a little bit of a negotiation there. And that may have been the skill of John Hughes of having all of his movies being made in Chicago because he wasn't in L.A. So he probably had a little bit of a safety net there, a safety zone of having these executives. I mean, how many times do you want to fly back and forth between LA and Chicago to comment on a movie? It's possible, but also another side note on John Hughes is the fact he doesn't last very long in the movie business. You know, he's, he basically in the nineties retires and just goes away into exile. And part of it is because he didn't like dealing with the executives. Yeah. When you look at the overall time of his, of his career as a director or even a screenwriter, you're talking from the time of writing scripts, maybe 13, 14 years. Right. Which, I don't know, that's when you consider everything that came out during that time period, that's very prolific period for, for any writer. He was writing one, sometimes two movies a year, and most were extremely successful. But also, you know, we're talking about the, the roles and, and, and who he would pick for his movies. Oftentimes, he had certain actors in mind, when he would write a script, you know, we talked about Molly Ringwald, but not not always, but oftentimes. This is, but, but what he would usually then do is then he would, once they were cast, he would then work with the actor. He would like to get to know the actor. And then he would go back and tweak the script and try to give the script the personality and character of the actual actor because he thought he was going to get more out of it that way. Well, I, one thing I found interesting about him, and the, the actors talked about it, um, people may not know that these teenagers that are that he casts in these movies, the, a lot of these movies have scenes in their bedroom. And John Hughes, one thing that he would always do is let the actor who plays the character de- de- basically decorate their bedroom okay. in the movie. Sure. Uh, and Molly Ringwald did that for did that for Sixteen Candles, and she did that for Pretty in Pink. Anthony Michael Hall and uh, you know Weird, Weird Science, Science yeah. they they decorated the bedroom in there because there are a lot of bedroom scenes shot there. So it's just, it's a touch that kind of gives it that younger vibe. It's not, uh, you know, some set designer that's trying to make it look cool. You know, she got to design the bedroom in 16 Candles exactly the way that she probably would have it at her house. Right. And, you know, also another thing with, with John Hughes is they said he was always open to, to suggestions. And he would take suggestions from the, the lighting uh, person 
if if he thought it was valid. You know, someone could say, hey, you know, I think a poster of Duran Duran looks good over in the corner. And it's like, yeah, I think you're right. And so he was always, it was, it was collaborative uh, working with him. I know I watched an interview, I think it was way back on like the Today Show when The Breakfast Club came out. I think it was Judd Nelson said that I've never worked with anybody that treated me more like an adult than John Hughes. And, you know, he was a young, you know, a younger adult sure. at the time. Uh, but the fact that they had so much input into the movie itself probably really helped develop those characters and make a better performance from the actors themselves. So here, here's, you know, a, a point with along those lines. The John Hughes, 16 Candles, which, yes, we are going to talk about it, folks. We'll, we'll eventually get there. But this is his directorial debut at any level. He did not go to film school. He did not work for directors. He, you know, he was not an assistant. He literally became a big deal because he wrote a, a, a very successful movie in Mr. Mom. That's the only reason he is at where he's at right now. And he said he, he decided to work with kids because he figured older actors would actually know how things are supposed to be done. <laughs> and he figured with kids, they don't know the difference. Yeah, so, but you know, like like we had said, it's not like these kids were brand new to the right. to the movie to the acting scene. Right. Uh, they, these were some veteran actors, and they'd been around for for a while. But um, you know, probably his his apprehension, where he felt like he was going to be uh, ridiculed or or you know people were going to look at him skeptically, is is probably in the end what made them like him better because he was different than the other directors that were out there. Right. So he, he casts Molly Ringwald, you know, she has the part. Now they're going to cast Farmer Ted. And, you know, as Scott said, he was already already aware of Anthony Michael Hall. And by the way, did you know that his real name is Michael Anthony yes, Hall? Yes, I did see that. Yeah, yeah I, I saw that clip and he, it's like he goes by Mike. And the only reason he did it was because when, when he was coming out and trying to get his union card, there was another Michael Anthony Hall and... He said, all right, well, we'll just flip it. And he goes, now he's kind of stuck with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he played Rusty in National Lampoon's Vacation. And, um, again, he, even though he's in light, in real life, he's a few years older than me, but his characters typically, when the movies came out, were roughly about the same age for right. both of us, for both of us. And I just, I loved the character of Rusty because he played it so well. It was kind of an understated, but a very smart yeah. Uh, Rusty, he, he kind of had a wise, you know, wise, uh, kind of an old, old soul ability about him. He always, and he seemed to upstage, uh, Clark, Chev, yeah, yeah. Clark in, the, in the movie. And even, uh, Hughes commented, he's like, when you have uh, somebody who is a pretty big talent, like Chevy Chase, and he gets upstaged by a teenager, he goes, you know, you got that actor's pretty special. So he, he gets selected, uh, Anthony Michael Hall gets selected to be, uh, Ted, and then John Hughes lets him pick his friends. So the, the, there, there's the two brothers uh, in the movie. Uh, it's going to be Bryce and Cliff, mm -hmm. who are, are incredible. Of course, Bryce is John Cusack. Very famous actor. Know, goes yeah. on to become incredibly successful. Cliff, I, I'm not even sure what the actor's name was. It was Cliff. He, he, never, could, he, he didn't really do much. I couldn't find Cliff was played by Darren Harris. Yeah. And I could not find anything. Like I don't Darren think he Harris. did anything after yeah. that. I, he it, it, he was funny. He was great in that movie. I, I really I really liked his character. So, uh, you know, but you know, uh, John Hughes said to Anthony Michael Hall, "Well, they're going to be your friends, so you might as well pick them." And he literally let a fifteen year old cast actors in the movie. 
even down to when when they do the scenes, he let Anthony and Michael Hall decide how he was going to treat them. So he kind of slaps the, the the two brothers around a little bit like Mo mm-hmm. from the Three Stooges, and that's kind of just that's just Anthony and Michael Hall ad libbing. Yeah. Um- but those are some of the best, in my opinion, those are some of the best scenes in the movie because it's, you you know, and you see it in, when you're a kid and you saw it in school all the time. It's like, why is this shorter guy <laughs> knocking these big giants around and they're taking it? Right. And when you look at, when you looked at um, Cliff and Bryce, they tower right. over Ted, right. yet he's, he's like yelling at him. He points his finger at him <laughs> and they're like, sorry, sorry, you know, but- I, we used to see that all the time in yeah. school. I used to do that with my friend Dan. My Dan, friend Dan was six foot six. Yeah. And I would yell at him. He'd be like, sorry. You know, it just, it, it, it happened. It, it was stuff that would happen in real life. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Now, now after 16 Candles, you know, of, of course, Anthony Michael Hall is going to star in two more John Hughes films, Breakfast Club, which we'll, we'll dedicate an entire show to The Breakfast Club because, you know, that it, that is really the seminal John Hughes film. Uh, I, I have, but also, in addition to that, then he does Weird Science. It's the last John Hughes movie he ever does. But he was actually, the Ferris Bueller character was written for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I it, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, him in the character right now because it's just, you know, uh, you know, so established in our minds. But that was supposed to be for him. And also, the Ducky character mm-hmm. from uh, In Pretty in Pink was yeah. supposed to be for him as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it was... Uh, and I can't fault the guy for wanting to branch out and try and do different characters. Actually, after The Breakfast Club, he joined Saturday Night Live. He did. And became the, still to this day, is the youngest cast member ever in SNL. He and, so, he and Robert Downey Jr. were on together. Yeah. And if you go back and watch those clips on YouTube, it's painful. Well, I mean, that whole they, show was painful. It, it, that that yeah. whole cast was was really, they. but there were some pretty good actors that came out of that, that, out of that cast. You know, you, you said you said Robert Downey Jr. Sure. Uh, Randy Quaid yeah. was in that cast. Um, Joan Cusack was she? Was Not she sure. in, in SNL? I, uh, but there were some there were some pretty pretty decent names that ended up coming out and having some some uh, more than outstanding. Yeah, and he has he has no idea. You know that obviously Ferris Bueller is going to be as big a, a hit as what it is, and it really launched Matthew Broderick's career. I I think Matthew Broderick was incredible in the role and we're going to do a whole uh, you know an episode doing ferris bueller's day off sure uh but so sometimes things work out right you know and um but so he's he's cast but then the the third the next character and probably the 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 next uh main character is going to be the character jake ryan mm-hmm. and it's by relatively unknown actor michael Sheffling, who is from our neck of the woods yes you know he is he Went to Temple University. You know, he's a South Jersey kid. He uh, was born in uh, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre. It's, so he is somebody that, you know, kind of came from the East Coast. And um, a guy that, you know, he was, this was, you know, really his first big you know, breakthrough. And he, he did modeling prior to that. And, you know, obviously, you know, the the girls still swoon to this day over, over Jake Ryan. And hard to imagine, though, that the role almost went to Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. Viggo Mortensen of, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings fame. Uh, and since then his career has certainly not fallen off. Uh, he's, he's been nominated for numerous Academy Awards and is one of the, one of the bigger A-list actors out there today. Michael Shuffling? No. 
Michael Scheffling retired from acting. Yeah, 1991. And started a uh, woodmaking business. Sure. That he still runs to this day. So and, 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 and he's probably very happy, happier. Very happy. Yeah. So, I mean, I always, he kind of, it, it's interesting because he kind of went the way of John Hughes. I mean, both of those actors kind of walked away when they were fairly well known. Although, you know, Michael Scheffling, in Vision Quest, as, uh, I mean, he, he, I love the character in Vision Quest that he plays Cooch. Yep. And it, it's, that is a great movie as well. Well, just a little side note on Cooch, uh, Michael Scheffling in his character in Vision Quest is a wrestler. And in real life, he was actually a really good high school wrestler and could have wrestled in college. So he was a top, you know, he's a, a very highly state ranked wrestler as a as a teenager in high school. So right. just, just a little side note there. So with, with the movie um, Sixteen Candles, it was successful, but it wasn't hugely successful. So it cost $6.5 million to make. And it brought in $23.6 million at the box office. Yeah. It made money, but you certainly at the time would not have said that this was one of the all-time huge movies, you know, that, that ever was put out. Yeah. And, and in terms of box office receipts, this may have been his lowest. If, if you think about the movies that he put out there, it's got to be at or near the bottom of, because the, Bre- the Breakfast Club did probably three times that at the, you know... And um, Uncle Buck, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Those were successful oh, movies. Absolutely. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that was yeah, arguably his best. Uh, I think Home Alone was the biggest moneymaker. Yeah. Um, as he was the screenwriter for that. Chris Columbus did the, did the directing. Right. I think for his directing, I think Ferris Bueller was probably not. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. And, but, you know, the thing is, we're, we're now in a time, 1984, now it's going to be 1985, it, when it when it's going to hit video and it it's if this had been the 1970s where you didn't have uh video rentals or in our case where you're watching the uh you know the the pay cable channels it probably doesn't become a su- success so what happens is it, this movie's kind of geared towards the, the, the teen crowd mm-hmm. i didn't see it in the theater when it came out i i probably wasn't seeing a whole lot of movies at that time well, the movie of the year at that time, which was on everybody's uh, radar, was Ghostbusters. That was the biggest movie. That was the blockbuster of '84, and that's what I ended up seeing in the movie theater with my with my friends at the time. That was that was the movie you wanted to see. This was this kind of snuck up on people, and thank really credit some of the uh, you know the critics for kind of propping this movie up because it could have very easily been just swept under the rug and forgotten about, but it got some decent reviews. I remember, um, Siskel and Ebert in particular really liked this movie. And they said, this is, these, these are high school characters. Like we're not used to seeing in movies. And you know, this, this is for, there's a lot of realism here. There's, there's a lot of situations that I think people can identify with and relate to. It's not your over the top, teenage movie and that's really where i kind of thought about the movie itself was was uh, you know as as geeky as we are uh, i believe we watched siskel and ebert on tv absolutely and you know because they gave ratings three you know they gave thumbs up thumbs down right and i i would actually rely upon their comments and they did they did give this movie two thumbs up yeah and that was what i remembered about it and then as it started to hit the cable TV circuit, which for us at the time was Prism. Right. Uh, I just remember the first time we saw it and just how funny it was and how much uh, 
it it had jokes in there that you didn't see coming and i think that's kind of the charm to it is is the the, the comedy aspect of the movie never goes away it stays Correct. funny all the way throughout but um they they do it in a way that it's it, there are people today that are going to say oh there's some offensive scenes but at the time i don't think any i don't think we really found those scenes offensive uh, as as much as we found it funny right right and so i i didn't see it in the theater you know but i, I think i heard about it at, whether it was through Cisco Niebert or whether it was just you know kind of word on the street there at school it 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 was something where it kind of started a little groundswell and you talk about us you know that we that we had prism the way it used to work uh, back in the day, kids, is you would get this monthly guide that would come out, and it you would look forward to it. So it it'd arrive in the mail. Prism, this this cable company would would come. You know, by the way, you know, Prism. It was the only way back then to watch Phillies home games, watch Sixers, Flyers home games. That's what the, that's how we sold it to our parents. Mm-hmm. But we also knew that we we're going to get movies on the side, right? And you know, and our parents watch movies too, so you know they I, they, they like that aspect as well. But so what you would do is that the guide would come out and sometimes there'd be little write-ups about about some of the movies and you'd have to actually look at the time and schedule your life around it. So if you saw 16 Candles was coming on Thursday at 8 o'clock, you know, you marked it down and made sure you were going to watch it. Yeah, it was set up just like TV Guide if anybody ever subscribed to TV Guide. It you looked at the you looked at the channel listings and then they would have national times that you could watch. And the, the nice thing about uh, cable subscriber movie channels like Prism is you got to see these movies. It wasn't terribly long after no, the movie was no. in the theater. You're it, probably talking maybe six months. It was probably before it, it hit actual video rental. Yes. You could see a movie on whether it was HBO or Showtime, Cinemax, Prism. Right. You could see those movies way before they actually were released on VHS, right? As we knew it back then, right? So, it, you know, while it wasn't super successful, you know, at the time it, it was successful. It made money. Anything that makes money in Hollywood successful. But I think once it finally got out there into the homes, and you know, people our age were able to kind of watch it at home, it then it really took off. It took on a whole life of its own, and um, I just remember watching the movie at home with our, everybody watched it. We watched it as a family sure. at least once or twice in the house. I just remember every, every, there was something in there that everybody found funny. Right. Everybody found uh, Long Duck Dong. Long Duck Dong. It's going to make everybody laugh. Getty Watanabe. Everybody thought he was hilarious. He was a scene stealer. But my uh, my favorite scene stealer, I think, was was the the Ted character played by Anthony Michael. I, I you know I just loved his character then and now. Um, but anyway, go on. Well, you know, to to prep uh, uh, for the the show, uh, I watched it twice this past okay. week. I, I watched it uh, again last night. I still laughed, mm-hmm. and even even though I know certain scenes are coming, and uh, it, it's always the Ted character. It, the the Ted character. Is, is always the one that makes me laugh. And so much of it is just because Anthony and Michael Hall's delivery was so good. And there's sound effects that they put in there. <laughs> yes. So, it, the, the, you know, they'll, they'll be like, all right, here's an example. So, uh, Scott mentioned that Long Duck Dong, you know, arrives. You know, he's the, uh, the, the Chinese exchange student that comes over. Whenever he appears, there's a gong sound. Yes. Right? Whenever Farmer Ted appears, there's the theme to Dragnet. 
Uh, you know, I never noticed that. Yep, as he's walking up a bus. Dun, 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 dun. Wait, I remember that in the bus. Yeah. When he's at the bus and he goes up he, to Samantha for the very first at, time. At the dance, it's like, it, it's go back and watch. Okay. And, and it's like, you know, he, I, he's got the, the dragnet theme. Okay. Yeah. So that's a wrap on part one of our discussion on 16 Candles. We hope you enjoyed the first part as we went through some of the background on John Hughes, the director, in addition to some of the actors that were chosen to be in this iconic 80s movie. Join us next time as we finish our conversation on 16 Candles with a more thorough discussion on specific scenes in the movie itself. And we hope you tune in. And we again, thank you for listening to us here on Gen X Playback. I'm Scott, one half of the Brothers High, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. <laughs>